We have been studying the Gospel of John, and we started that a couple weeks ago. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 1. Over the course of the past two weeks, we have explored some profound truths that John communicates about the identity of Christ, who Christ is. If you've been with us, you know the purpose of John's Gospel, that he writes this so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that the man, Jesus, was Christ, and he is Christ, God eternal. So everything he writes, all 21 chapters, revolve around that primary purpose. He is Christ. He is the Son of God. And believe that, and you will have eternal life. His attempt to communicate that truth is so that we, the readers and the hearers of this gospel, would believe in it. So far, we've seen John introduce this gospel theme in the first chapter by showing us that Christ existed eternally with the Father, and that He is God, and that He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He has also shown us that Christ is the light of men, by whom spiritually blind men, naturally we cannot see things of the Spirit, we cannot understand who God is, that he is, Christ is our light who has given us the ability to see and comprehend who he is. He gives us new life so that we can receive him rather than reject him as we are naturally bent to do. He has been deliberate with his words to communicate these truths, all the while exalting Christ as supreme. He is the one worthy of all of our devotion and all of our affection. This morning, we conclude this introduction to the Gospel of John in verses 1 through 18. Those verses summarize the whole Gospel. And we're wrapping up that introduction in verses 14 through 18 as we look at the Word of Glory. In my preparation this week, I read some who already knew that, you know, 1 through 18 summarizes the whole gospel, but multiple commentators identify the fact that these four verses, five verses, 14 through 18 that we're looking at this morning, actually summarize the introduction. So if 1 through 18 of chapter 1 summarizes the whole gospel, verses 14 through 18 summarize that introduction, and then they would go on to say that verse 14 summarizes verses 14 through 18. There's a lot of emphasis on verse 14, and I've kind of pointed to that in the past couple weeks, saying, hey, we're going to get to the climax in a couple weeks when we learn that the Word became flesh. And that's where we are this morning. So at the very beginning of verse 14, John says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, when we read this statement about the Word becoming flesh, we should immediately think back to verse 1, verses 1 through 3. Because it was there that we learned that the Word was. He existed eternally. And that He coexisted with God, that He was with God. And that we learned about the intimacy with which they shared. But not only that, but that He was God. So when we see in verse 14 is that this Word took on flesh, that he became man. He is the logos. He is the word of God that is the full revelation of all who God is. And this full revelation became flesh. 
And that is the most profound, glorious truth of all that we see in John's gospel. That the eternal God became man. And when he took on flesh, he did not cease being God. He was completely man while retaining his identity as completely God. He was 100% man, 100% God, 200% awesome. If you've been through our new members class, you've heard me say that. I give credit. Caleb shows if you're watching uh, down the road one day. This is his, his thing. It's one of my friends. But we know that he is 100% man and 100% God. This is what's known as the hypostatic union. If you're into like terms, if you're not into terms, that's okay. What you need to know is he's fully God and he is fully man without separating the two. We know that he was man because he experienced things like pain, hunger, even death. He was born of a woman just like we were. As a boy, he grew both physically and in wisdom. In John chapter 4, while Jesus is on his way to Galilee, he gets tired. So he sits down at the well where he has this divine meeting with the Samaritan woman. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He became physically weak. And he died. He was fully man. And as I mentioned before, John knew that. The people that lived with Jesus at this time could identify that he was actually man. John writes this gospel so that we would recognize that truth and also that he was God. This is the greatest mystery in human history. This mystery has been a stumbling block to many whose hearts were hardened by this truth and said, I can't believe that. It's foolishness to some who, who say there's no way that God took on the form of man. They can't be both at the same time. That's foolishness to me. I can't comprehend it. This is a mystery that many in the early church struggled with. In 451 AD, the leaders of the church gathered in Chalcedon. Chalcedon is now what we would call Turkey. It's in a place in Turkey. And they debated. They listened to all the arguments, trying to identify, okay, how do these two things work together? How is he God and man? Was he man and then became God? Was he, is he some sort of half God, half man? How does that work? And they listened to the arguments, the thoughts of man, as man searched the scripture and said, this is what we believe. And they came up with a definition that we hold to in the Christian faith. It's the Chalcedonian Creed or the Chalcedonian definition. And we've got it up on the screen for you as I read along. They said, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man. Of a reasonable or a rational soul and body. Consubstantial, that means coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. 
in all things like unto us without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. Each nature is preserved in this union. And concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. This is what we celebrate every December 25th. This is, this is Christmas. So it's Christmas in May. Because this is the incarnation of Christ as fully God became fully man. In his taking on flesh, we see the infinite God become finite. We see the eternal God who exists outside of time and space step into time and occupy space. We see the invisible God become visible. The supernatural become natural. The creator become part of his creation. We see the highest of highs humble himself to become the lowest of lows to the point where he dies on a cross, put to death by the very creation that he came to save. We see God become man. Now, why would he do such a thing? Why would God, who rules over all, created everything, why would he become man? In his apologetic work, Mere Christianity, a lot of you know him as C.S. Lewis. The first time I heard this, I thought it was interesting. Just, it's a nerd thing. Uh, his name is Clive Staples Lewis. His middle name is Staples. Um, he said, the Son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. The Son of God became man so that men might become sons of God. And we learned that last week, right? That the true light for those of us who receive Christ are given the right to become children of God. Christ becoming a man in the form of Jesus is an essential aspect of our salvation. Let me kind of explain this to you. You see, God's judgment for sin is death and eternal separation from his favor. It is a sentence that the judge looks down on man and says, your punishment is eternal. Now, we have a problem there. Because, see, man is a created being. We are finite. And so if you put a finite man to, to, to serve this sentence that is eternal, 
Well, what do you have? You have eternality serving this sentence. It will never be served completely. It takes a divine, eternal being to be able to do that, to accomplish that. But at the same time, in order for God to be just, man had to pay the penalty because man is the one who offended God. So how does this work out? Well, look at the beauty of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, what we're looking at today. When that word took on flesh, now there is a way. Because you have an eternal being who has existed for all time and eternity past, who is God, and he becomes man. 100% God, 100% man. And he satisfied that sentence that man deserved. That's essential for us to believe, for those of us who are in Christ. Because without it, there is no hope. Without it, he just died and came to life, but that sentence is still hanging loose out there. But for those of us who find ourselves in him, that sentence has been paid. It's been satisfied. The eternal divine word became flesh. He became man. But did you know that there was a greater purpose even than our salvation? That it's even more than just saving man. See, man, we are not at the center of God's eternal plans and purposes, but we're a means through which he accomplishes those plans and purposes. So what is the primary purpose? Why did Christ take on flesh? John is taking us there in the following verses. And when we find that answer, what we're going to find is it's going to be the answer for our existence. When we say, okay, why did Christ come in the form of man? We're also going to answer the question, why do I exist? In verses, and through the rest of verse 14 and 15, he says, The Word took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, not only did Christ take on flesh, but He says He dwelt among us. The phrase used here literally means he pitched his tent among us or that he tabernacled with us. When you think Old Testament, when he says tabernacled, that's where God's presence was. And so when he tabernacles among us, God came to earth. His presence was here with us. And it's not where you think of, when I think of pitching a tent, for whatever reason, maybe it's because I think of Native Americans. I think of like nomadic people who like pitch a tent and they're only there temporarily, but they're going to continue to move around. And so they don't build a structure. They just have this tent. That's not what's being communicated here. Don't confuse yourself. Yes, Christ was here for a little while, but that's not what's being communicated. What's being communicated here is the intimacy that is shared with those who live in a tent. See, he pitched his tent and we, he lived among us. I think back to poverty simulation. And I know I can't say much because they It'd be such a great sermon illustration. But we lived intimately with one another. We saw the worst. When you wake up in the morning and you're dirty, we saw it. That's the intimacy with which Christ shared with those that he came to live among. 
So he moved into our backyard and he lived with us. And then he says, John says, and we have seen his glory. Now, going back to our question, what is the primary purpose for the divine word taking on flesh? It is for this reason, that his glory may be seen. What does that mean? If you've grown up in church, you may, to God be the glory. I think, I think to so many athletes, I think of like Tim Tebow, who, you know, first of all, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be all the glory. And that's good, but what does that mean? It means so much more than just acknowledging that he's present or acknowledging that he's given me the ability to do whatever I'm doing. That's, that's, that's only part of it. The glory of a person is best defined as the characteristics and attributes of that individual that reveal their beauty, their majesty, their splendor. I'll repeat that again because this is something that changed my view of why I exist and who God is. The glory of a person is best defined as the characteristics and attributes of that individual that reveal their beauty and majesty and splendor. It is the essence, the very core of who that person is. The purpose of Christ coming and taking on flesh and revealing his glory serves as our primary purpose as well. We exist to glorify God. So when we say Sulphur Community Church exists to make much of God. That is another way of saying we exist to glorify Him. We are saying that our purpose in life is to make Him known by putting on display His characteristics and His attributes so that those who see us putting that on display see God. They see His majesty, His splendor, His beauty, And they see it and they know him. And this is an area in my life that I struggle with. It's scary that I get to stand up and preach in front of you because one of my life struggles is saying, hey, I want you to know me. I want you to see me and know who I am. I want you to see my glory. That's not why we exist. That's not why Christ came, so that we would see him. That he would reveal his glory, and that we would know him. And when John says, we have seen his glory, like I kept thinking, like, mission accomplished, right? Mission accomplished. John says, Christ came, and we have seen his glory. We know him. And then John describes this glory of Christ by saying, it is the glory as of the only Son from the Father. John is saying that he got to know who Christ was, and he has identified him as God in the flesh, which serves as the purpose for why he's even writing all of this. He's saying, I know him, and I'm writing these things so that you can know him too. That's why when we started this a couple weeks ago, I encourage you to look for Christ. Look for the Christ revealed here. 
And then I love this next statement. Because he says that, he describes his glory. His glory is of the only Son from the Father. And that this glory is full of grace and truth. He's full of it. Now, how do we know when something is full of something else? I think back to when I was a kid. One of our chores was taking out the trash. And like all depraved children, we, have, we had sinful minds and motives, right? <laughs> it still carries forward today. Parents would ask us, hey, why haven't you taken out the trash yet? Our response would be, oh, it doesn't need to be taken out yet. Why? It's not full. Look, let me show you. And what do we do? Smash it down, right? We push it down. Some of, I don't, I've never done it, but I've seen people step on it, push it down. It's not full yet. I know it's not full because nothing's spilling over. That's why it's not full. Now, that works sometimes. Sometimes you tear the bag and you make a bigger mess. Sometimes you can even do it maybe a couple times. I mean, I've gotten to the practice of doing it before Natalie even asks, right? As I'm putting stuff in the way, I'm like, oh, man, it's getting pretty full. (laughs) At some point, though, that trash can, it fills up. How do you know it's full? Because when you go to put something else in it, it flows over. Now, I'm not comparing Christ to a trash can, okay? But understand the principle, because I think it is is something really neat to think about when you talk about the fullness of Christ being full of grace and truth. He is so full of grace and truth that it overflows out of him. And what's even cooler to think is it's not as if if you go to put more grace in, then the grace falls over, that it's dependent upon somebody putting something into him, but it's welling up within him. It's welling up eternally, unending within him, overflowing, overflowing grace and truth. I want you to keep that in mind for a second, because that is at the core of of what John is communicating about who Christ is. Just for a second, because for whatever reason, he did this to me again, back-to-back weeks, he slides in this verse about John the Baptist. Just like what we saw last week, right? He's talking about the Word, the Word, the light, the light, John the Baptist, the light, the light, the Word. He did it again. And it seems out of place, but obviously it's not. It's not out of place. Last time we looked at the contrast. He's looking at the person of Christ, comparing him to the greatest man that ever walked the earth, right? And so you see how John the Baptist does not compare to Christ. Don't look at the person this time. I want you to look. This time we actually have words that he spoke. Look at the words. Look at the message. In John 1.15, it's in parentheses. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. We talked last week about how John the Baptist was, he was not the light and he pointed people to the light. His whole purpose was to point people to Christ. He's referenced here in the same way. He's he's pointing people. He said, hey, this is he. 
This is the one I told you about. His cry was that, look, I know I came before Jesus. When you, if you were to look at our ministry, I started before him. But he, is, he ranks higher than me. He is superior to me. And in fact, he was before me. He's talking about the fact that he's recognized that Christ is the promised one who is God in the flesh. John the Baptist saw his glory. John the Baptist saw who he was. His glory was revealed. He knew who he was. And just like our author of this gospel knew who Christ was and wanted us to know him, John the Baptist was the same way. I've beheld his glory and you need to know him. Stop coming to me, go to him. And then we come to verse 16. So I ask you to remember about that fullness, right? The study of verse 16 could not have come at a better time in my life. I needed to be reminded of this truth that he describes here. He says in John 1.16, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You remember that fullness of the glory of God and grace and truth? It's from his fullness that we who have been given the spiritual eyes to see and understand believe the truth and receive grace. We receive unmerited favor, undeserved, something given to us that we did not deserve. We've been given the ability to know Christ even though we didn't deserve it. And we have not just received grace, but we have received grace upon grace. What John is trying to communicate here about the fullness of the grace of Christ is that it is unceasing. That it is grace upon grace. You could read it, and we have received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's, it's this unending, never ceasing. I talked about how it's flowing from within him and overflowing. It's like waves where one after another, grace keeps coming in and coming in. That's the glory of Christ. He is full of grace. So what does that mean for us? When I came across that this week, this week, I was overwhelmed with these feelings of thankfulness, of peace, joy. Because for me, sometimes I forget. We, we learned last week, our, our new birth is not of blood. It is not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but it is of God. Sometimes I forget that just like my new birth is of God, my walk as a child of God is also of him and not of my flesh. I fall prey to thinking that I'm on my own now. I forget words like Paul said in Galatians 3.23. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? And I give a hearty yes to that, that question. That I am that foolish. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's a rhetorical question. What he's saying is, you were begun by the Spirit, 
you're not being perfected by the flesh, but being perfected by the Spirit, that same Spirit that gave you new life from the beginning, that He who began a new work in you will bring it to completion. I praise God that it's not of my own. Because we're sinners, right? I mean, we've been saved by the grace of God, where that grace has, has removed this, this sentence that we deserve, the, the effect of our sin eternally, but we still suffer from it in our flesh today. And I find comfort, and I think as a church, we should find comfort in the fact that when we do mess up, when we do fail, when we look to Christ, we don't see condemnation. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. But we find grace upon grace upon grace. Unending. Never ceasing. In verse 17, John again points to this glorious grace in a way that we get the point across to that portion of his audience. Remember, we talk, he's writing this in Ephesus where he's got both Jewish and Gentile audience. They would, this would get the point across to them. He says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now again, John is writing this about the person of Christ. Okay, so one of the tendencies we have is we immediately go to, we've been so saturated with the, the works of Paul, the writings of Paul, and we, we know that, okay, we are now, we are no longer under the covenant of works, the covenant of the law, but we are under the covenant of grace now. And so we kind of force that into the text. That is a very true statement. I'm not taking away from that. But remember, John is writing this so that we may know Christ, the person. Jesus wants us to know that through Moses, God gave the law. But when we look to Christ, the person, we don't find the law because Christ came to fulfill the law. When we look to Christ, we find grace and truth and not condemnation. He is the gracious Lord of truth. He wraps up this discussion with one final summarizing statement in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. We get to know the God of the universe. That's grace. <laughs> the fact that He would reveal Himself to us. Outside of Christ, no one has ever seen God. But the only God, Jesus Christ, who is currently at the Father's side, like he's, he's at the Father's side waiting for the moment where he gets to come finish the establishment of his kingdom here on earth. That God has not only allowed him to be seen. No one's ever seen God, but Christ has made him known. Where we get to know him. He has glorified him. He has shown, put on display his character and attributes so that we can know him.
So what are the implications for us? I've been praying for myself in particular, but then also for us as a church, that we would rest in that unceasing grace that comes through Christ. Never ending. It's overflowing. And it continues eternally. As we strive to live holy lives worthy of this gospel that we've received, let's rest in that. Because I think we see in our passage this week that that Christ offers this glorious grace for us. So no matter how we lived our lives this past week, how we failed to live up to this standard that God has set before us, even if it was just last night, when you turn back to Christ, his arms are open, and he's saying, I've got more grace for you. Keep going. Keep striving. I want you to be holy. I want you to be like me. Keep trying. And while you're doing that, I'm going to give you some grace for when you fail, and I'm going to give you some more grace so that I'll give you the ability to accomplish that. This process of sanctification, I shared with our community group this this past week. One of the hardest things about being a Christian is that now we have the Holy Spirit to convict us. That's not fun. Whereas when things in the past, we could go do them and not, we'd be fine. The smallest things. If I have an impure thought, all of a sudden the world is crashing down on me. Because the Holy Spirit is convicting me and saying, hey, that's not holy. But where that happens, there's more grace coming. And it's unceasing. Grace upon grace upon grace. So while we rest in that, let's do so as we seek to accomplish this next implication. Christ came to glorify his Father. He came to make him known. That is why we exist. Here at Sulphur Community Church, why do we exist? We exist to make much of God in our neighborhoods and to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ. How do we fulfill this purpose? We reflect the light, the light of Christ, So we go into the darkness. There is darkness in our neighborhoods. There is darkness in the nations. There's darkness in our workplaces, in our families, in our homes, in our schools. We exist to reflect the light so that God would be made known. Let's rest in grace while we strive to do so, but keep striving to fulfill that purpose. This morning specifically, we, have, we recognize some graduates this morning, okay? Some of us, we've gone through that before. Some of us, we're looking to that, whether it's high school, college, graduation, wherever we fall. We've got parents here this morning where their children were recognized, So we've all been to this place. 
let's examine ourselves and think, how am I doing at fulfilling my purpose? How am I glorifying God in my workplace? What attributes do they see in me? Do they see impatience? As I confessed to you this week that I displayed frustration? Or do they find forgiveness, mercy, grace? As we strive to make him known, let's be people of grace and truth. Let's pray.